Welcome to like Blackpool went through rock with Sarah Parker. Um, we're really, really excited to have Sarah here uh, to talk about the radio ballads, which her father was instrumental in making the first set of radio ballads in the 50s. And then she has had a, a really big role in making the second set of radio ballads. So she's going to tell you all about that. Okay. Over to Sarah. Thank you for coming. I don't know how many of you went out for the um, evening last night. <laughs> I didn't. I was too frightened about this morning and oversleeping or something. Um, the Director General of the BBC, when this programme went out in 1958, called it the most originally conceived, the most brilliantly executed and the most moving radio programme I've ever heard. The thing about it was it was so very different to anything that was going out on the BBC then. And, in fact, the reason it was so different was up until that point, people had gone out with these massive pieces of recording equipment. They'd maybe recorded people, but they'd taken it all back to the BBC headquarters and the secretary had transcribed it and then somebody had read it. Now, the three people, there were three people involved in the radio ballads. One was Ewan McColl, who I don't know if any of you know, but he was a very important folk singer and very important songwriter. Another was Peggy Seeger. She came from a very strongly um, musical background. Her father, Charles Seeger, was one of the leading folklorists in America. Um, she was a young woman, very young woman, in fact. And then there was my father, and he was like the BBC producer. Now, my father was everything that the BBC thought a producer should be. You know, he'd been in, he'd had a good war, he'd in World War One, World War Two, sorry, <laughs> not that old. He'd been in um, the Navy, you know, he'd been decorated, he came back, he went to Cambridge, he did a history degree, and he turned up, he was a strong Christian, but in fact, he was a maverick. And he'd already been thinking about doing things like putting music and sound and everything into programs. I'm going to play you something now that was right at the very, very beginning of his... Um, his career, uh, when he was just sort of beginning to think about this. Um, but you will see here the complete difference, because after that I'm going to play you one from one of the radio ballads, a clip. Also, both were about mining communities. The first one is called Any Dark Morning, and it is a composed piece, really, of sound and music and red material, because everything was read by actors at that time. It seems almost impossible to believe this now. But that was how it was made then. This is the Midland Home Service. We present Any Dark Morning, a prelude to the pits by Willis Hall and Ken Coates.
beginning with the darkness of an autumn morning, when the frost-hung clotheslines cobweb Coal Street, swing idle for the wash from the morning mangles, span the brickwork backyard squares. Coal Street shivers and blinks lace-curtained windows, winks at the wavering, fading moon. Now the thing about that, it gives you a really good idea of the early 50s, just post-war, and what it was like in the BBC. I mean, that would have been considered fairly radical, surprisingly. Um, but at the time, uh, the working man, you know, in the communities, the mining communities, the fishing communities, all these communities that actually the radio ballads addressed, at least in the first four radio ballads, which were about railway workers was the first one, the second one was about um, building the first motorway, actually, in Britain, uh, called Song of the Road, um, thought to be perhaps the least successful. The third one was about the fishing industry, and the fourth one was about coal mining. Now, the reason I've played you that, and I'm now going to play you the coal mining one out of sequence, is just to show you the impact of the voice of the working man and the musicians and that interaction and just that feeling of really being down the pit and the real living quality that you have in this next clip, I think. I mean, you may disagree, but that's what I think. The silence in the pit, it's, it's like infinity or, or the bottom of the ocean. It's, it's peaceful. And yet it's sometimes frightening. You could be driven to panic with it, I think. You've now known absolute blackness. Always there's stars at night and there's always a moon. But there, there's nothing. And you can f feel this pressing on you, the darkness. You can feel this darkness. The world where a man is always a stranger Where the miner works and lives with danger you see, you've got the smells, and you've got your look, and you you put your hands behind you, and you feel the rough surface of the stone. You see, and you feel the dust and the, and the props, the bark that was on the props. And you used to visualise things happening in the blackness. Here is the place where the big hewer earns his pay. Go down. Here is the face he battles with night and day. Go down. Spits on his hands, cracks rocks and boulders, bears up the world on his own two shoulders, digging a hole out, getting the coal. Go down. To me, that is one of the most poetic bits of radio I think I've heard. My father was captivated by the story of John Axon, who was this railwayman who stayed on his train when it was a runaway train. He stayed on it and he uh, crashed in the end. He was actually trying to stop it going into a passenger train. He got awarded the George Medal and it's a romantic story really in many ways, you know, of sort of man trying to um, uh, combat a machine and man's adversity and this sort of overcoming adversity and dying in the end. So it, it has a story and it has a story that can be threaded through the programme. 
But when he went along with to record in the um, my, in the sheds, you know, the engine sheds, to talk to John Axon's colleagues, he discovered this vein of language and uh, just passion for their work, passion for their lives, and just the extraordinary voices of these men. That until then, all you'd hear is a voice like mine on the BBC, you know, um, acting it all out. And there was a real reality there. Um, and Ewan McCall, now Ewan McCall came from working class background, very working class. He left school at 14. He was called, in fact, Jimmy Miller then before the war. And he was working uh, in street theatre, very left wing street theatre. And do you know, oh, what a lovely war? The, yes. Well, he was actually married to Joan Littlewood for a while. And oh, what a lovely war was one of the things that sort of evolved out of their early collaboration, I guess, you know, this idea of using actuality and drama. And believe it or not, my father in England, you know, he was up in Scotland, Ewan, but my father after the war in England was sort of trying to do a similar thing in, in the church, you know, a nativity play he put on which would incorporate real interviews um, with singers and songwriters and theatre and everything. So there is a sort of dramatic imperative, I think, to the radio ballads. Um, so there they go. And like Blackpool went through what rock, which you're probably wondering what that means if you come from... Yes, well, the seaside towns... In fact, I should have brought some, shouldn't I? They sell these sticks of candy. I think you call it candy. It's sort of mainly peppermint. And through the middle of these sticks is the name of the town, and then you take it home and you give it to your, your mate when you get home or your friends or whatever. But, uh, like Blackpool went through rock, one of the railway workers, one of the first interviews that my father did... He said, railways go through my spine like Blackpool goes through rock. And it's just become a sort of catchphrase for that whole sort of really being... Because uh, that's sort of what the radio ballads do in a way. They take you inside the communities in a way that I think through the voices of the individuals and you and having this great understanding and this political leaning as well, towards the sort of working classes and the working class hero and everything. Um, so I'd like to... They did, after the Radio Ballads, they did have a sort of programme which they discussed the making of them, sometimes in quite sort of esoteric terms. But I'd like to play you a clip of my father talking with Ewan about um, the making of a sequence within the... Uh, John Axon, when they go into the shed, the um, where the the guys are learning to, learning the trade of being a railwayman, basically, and it's all about how you start out working on the railways, and it's layers of sound and speech and music. Now, first, I think we should refresh our memories on just what this synthesis of real life recordings, folk style music, and recorded effects really sounds like. So let's begin with a sequence from the Ballad of John Axon, which was my first intimation of just what we let ourselves in for. It's the passage which deals with the experience awaiting a 14-year-old boy when he joins the railways at the time when the tradition was still steam trains and sweat, the engine shed sequence. The old railwayman, it was a tradition, it was part of your life. It went through, railways went through the back of your spine like Blackpool went through rock. You sign on at the loco shed, they put you to the cleaning. 
Oh, you were a lot happier than what you are now. In your dungarees, cleaning super D's, you're a sweeper, up a brewer, up a shovel, swing a spanner, bring a steam, raise a fire, drop a general, cook and bottle, wash a learning how to keep them rolling. Hey, lad, will you fetch me a bucket of red oil for a red tail lump? Charlie! Hey, Charlie! On your toes, clean that muck out of number five. Look alive there. Get weaving. Where have you been for that oil? Arabia? See the job on number three. They got a stripper. Ginger! Leave the job you're working on. Help the fit up. Hold the light, pass the wrench, the one-inch span-up off the bench, the one-inch ream-up. Hey, clean up! Do this, do that, get me this, get me that, rush job on number eight, working late, got a date, I'll never make it. You'll have to break it. Just a bloody skivvy, that's me. Two years, five years, ten years, fifteen years, a clean-up! Ah, when the work interferes with the girls, well, you give up the work, you see. <laughs> I still find that very exciting, Ewan, you know, and it's a great tribute to you because it was your conception and it was this, I think, more than any other that really got us going, don't you feel that? Yes, I do, Charles. Whether it was my conception or not is, is something that we could debate. When I began to work on these things, and I suspect you too, uh, I didn't have a very clear idea of how we could use uh, the idiom of folk music. Previously, in any work I'd done for radio, and in radio work of others, the way of using the material was merely to, to interrupt the programme at certain points mm. and have the narrator sing his material, ut uh, utilising a simple four-line verse form. But when we began to record in that railway shed at Edgeley Stockport, it was obvious that, that one couldn't deal effectively uh, by merely interrupting the programme, that is, by having a big body of sound, a big body of voices, and then uh, coming in nice and pat, uh, a body of music. In that railway shed, if you'll remember, there was, we, we spent a lot of time there recording. <laughs> it was dark and gloomy, and there was a constant hiss of steam, the constant kind of background noises of people working, and, of course, the great shuddering noises of, of, of the big steam locomotives starting in and, and getting steam up mm. and so on. There was also a fair amount of shouting went on, so that I began to see that the problem was a much bigger one than, than I'd originally envisaged. But one thing did become very clear, even at this point, and that is that in the terseness of uh, the mode of communication between workers mm. on the job... Uh, lay the secret, in my opinion, we had to create a musical idiom or we had to use the folk idiom and extend it so that it would uh, parallel exactly this terseness and so that it would follow inflectionally the sounds that we were hearing inside the workshop. So that we can't say that this, this was my original concept. No. This was dictated really by what we heard in that shed. And it was astonishing because they recorded... 30 hours, I think, for the first ballad, which was nothing in comparison to the final ballad, which was about gypsies, travelling people. They recorded 300 hours, and it just seemed such an amazing amount of material, but quite important that they did record that much when they were working 
to produce the songs which truly reflected the lives. Um, Ewan McCall, my father would sort of sort out the tapes and then Ewan McCall would take them away and Peggy would transcribe them and they would go through them and he would, he would form a sort of dramatic line which he would then write the songs around. Um, so you had this musical narrative which was the backbone of the piece. Um, the eight radio ballads, I should tell you now, are um, John Axon, which is about the railway community, Song of the Road, which, and I've already said, you know, about the building of the first stretch of motorway. That had its problems in that not only did they have real people talking, they also, you know, the workers on the roads, which came from all over the world, they also had uh, the sort of the bosses, and the bosses' voices were much more measured and controlled. And although they hadn't actually been on media training courses, <laughs> I hate interviewing people that have been on media training courses. Um, they, you know, they had, were putting across certain messages which were really about how important this motorway was and everything. And you and, and Peggy and Charles, they had a slight falling out over the whole thing, you know, because I think you and felt that Charles has sort of been sold out slightly to the establishment or whatever, because there was... Although the programmes themselves, I don't think, until the final one, have an obvious political message, they're very much about these communities that were struggling to have a voice at that time. Um, as well as that, then, after that, there was the coal mining one. When Charles actually... It was at this point, I think, that he started to move from his sort of Christian principles more to Marxist ones. Um, and then after that, there was the body blow. Now, this is where suddenly things start changing a bit because the body blow was about polio sufferers. Um, and uh, the thing about uh, that was that there was only five identifiable people within that program, uh, you know, while everything else had been sort of um, industrially based. And then after that, there was On the Edge, which was about teenagers. Now, there were lots of young people's voices in that. But again, it was more of um, a long, not a long vox exactly, but, you know, it was a thematically driven programme. And it was a sort of disparate community rather than a community all in certain places. And then you had The Fight Game, which was about boxers. And then you had the travelling people, which has been seen to be the most overtly political in that they were actually setting al alongside the sort of the fact that gypsies were moved off places. They were setting alongside that the voices of the people who didn't want them in their backyard, basically. Um, and there was an alderman there who talks about them as being maggots and how that he, he feels that... Um, that they should be exterminated, basically. And my father is so shocked by this that the only time you ever hear my father's voice is at the very end of The Travelling People, where he says, you don't really mean that. And the guy says, why not? <laughs> and uh, anyway, but I've, I've jumped now because I now need to talk really about 2006 when John Leonard and John Tams managed to get Persuade Radio 2 to make a new set of radio ballads. Um, they were quite different in that they chose different themes. They deliberately chose different themes. Um, I was a reporter. I, I was in gathered material for the programmes with another reporter called Vince Hunt. Um, I didn't do any production, although I did early editing and this sort of thing. 
Um, the swings and roundabouts section, I think actually of the one I made about the fairgrounds over there, which was again another community like the Travellers that's quite difficult to get into and you have to hang around for a long time <coughs> in order to encourage people to talk to you and get them to trust you. Um, I think the programme succeeded as well from their point of view in terms of the fact that they rang me and they said, one of the women rang and said, if ever you want to make another programme about show people, please come along and come straight to me and I'll help you make another one. Because So they, they felt that they were truly reflected within the programme. This is just the beginning of it and I love the sort of layers and the sound and it reminds me of the shed sequence a little bit. <laughs> We present Swings and Roundabouts, a radio ballad featuring the travelling showmen and women who run Britain's fairgrounds. Ladies and gentlemen, the show is about to begin. We're coming in. Yeah! It gets the adrenaline going a little bit when you hear the, the generators striking up and the puffs of smoke go up in the air and the, the lights come on and the music and the people come flocking onto a fairground. There's a lot to be done. Come on! All the wagons and vans into line. Hey, pull them on, the lad, all you! Pandora's box, Bishton, Proctor and Cox, unwrap their show one more time. Look at your finger, I'll get it done there, come on! Roll, roll, we know we're all day! Roll, roll, we want to try out now! Spellbound and spawn in the air! Come on! And it's all for the fun! Come here now! All for the fun! Show a bit of respect to your dad! All the fun of you can actually close your eyes and tell which is a fairground lorry and which ain't because the smell, the noise, it's all the same. When they say jack of all trades, master of none, I think that comes from show people because every showman's son and every showman knows a bit about woodwork, carpentry, electricity, building of rides, maintenance of rides. I mean, you can go onto any fairground and ask a young boy of 10 years old how a generator works and he'll tell you. It's alive on the so I just love that because, again, it sort of takes you inside it with all your senses, you know, that you're talking about smell and, like, it takes me back a bit to down the pit, you know, with the touch of the bark and all of that. Um, Charles and Ewan did a lot of the recording together, and I think that was quite important. The radio, these new radio ballads in 2006, that wasn't possible. They were made in 18 months six programmes. The, the old radio ballads was sort of one a year. I mean, Charles was doing other stuff, but, you know, still, you had these long sort of lead-in times, time for reflection. And actually, you couldn't have made the other ones, I don't think, in a shorter space of time because of the production difficulties which had to be overcome and thought about. We now have got Pro Tools, we've got all this computerised editing, and in fact, John Leonard has stories about how they were recording in John Tam's studio. John Tam's was a musical director. He's quite a significant sort of folk singer in Britain. Um, and John Leonard was the executive producer. So John Tam's would be with all the musicians. They'd be recording a bit. John Leonard would be sitting at his kitchen table 
the recording of the songs would come to him and he would be trying to slot them in around the actuality as planned. And if it didn't work, you know, they'd be sent back to do another session. It was sort of as sort of proactive and, and you know, intertwined as that. Um, the radio ballads, though, were in some ways, the originals were much more difficult in that everything had to be done in the studio. And this meant that you had the tape machine actually being like another musician. So you'd have all the musicians and all the singers and the tape machine, and you'd also have discs which had effects on, which had to be played in. And you'd have Peggy conducting and my father sort of directing from this box right at the, above the studio. And they just go for it, really. And they do 23 takes, they do 30 takes, they do 40 takes, you know, it would just depend. And then all these massive quarter-inch um, uh, spools, you know, full of these assembly tapes would be sort of vaguely sorted and then you'd have to try and assemble the programme of them. It sounds like quite a nightmare, really. Um, but first of all, of course, you have to get the material. And I'd like to play you a bit about Charles talking about how he did the recording because I think it's sort of quite significant, really. And I hadn't listened to my father's voice for 20 years since he died because I've, I was... I was just found it so difficult, the idea of doing this. And I think I'd not really thought of him as being dead up to that point because I was away when he died. And, um, but I started listening and I found a real connection, which I think probably all of you, if you gather material, will also recognise a lot of these sort of techniques. While often when you go out into the field and you start recording people, coal miners or teenagers or whoever, whatever may be the particular subject that one is trying to handle. At first, there are, on the face of it, some inhibitions because of the normal difficulties of establishing a relationship out of the blue, because of the, I think, of this fear of humiliation and induced by the feeling that they are vernacular speakers and they're going to be in some way parodied and held up to ridicule. And I'm afraid that some of the vox pop one sees on the news coverage on radio and television, you know, tends to give a certain amount of body to this suspicion in them. But as soon as one gets through this, and this is usually a matter of minutes, and they become convinced that you are wanting to hear them and not dictate to them, the microphone and the tape recorder, far from being an inhibitory agent, becomes, I think, a precipitator of the oral material. Incidentally, it's, I find it a very good thing to sit literally at the feet of people because it helps the position of the microphone. And psychologically, it's a good thing to be lower than them anyway so that they physically dominate the proceedings. First of all, of course, people, I find, try to give you the big generalisation. The, they try to give you what they think you want, which are the big concepts of um, pit disasters or whatever. And usually they gloss over the matter, the detailed matter, which is often the most important, certainly the most eloquent in terms of expressing a miner's life, you know, the fact that the miner won't particularly concern himself with the fact that every morning when he goes down to the pit, he goes into the lamp cabin, collects his lamp and leaves a docket, which then stays up on the surface while he goes down below, and the precise sort of routine that he does every morning and which he doesn't think about. But I find that what happens is that people suddenly start to conduct a sort of dialogue with themselves. Usually for the first time, they are hammering out experience, because nobody's asked them these sort of questions before or expressed interest in this, in these ordinary areas of their lives. 
and they take off into moments of extraordinary, almost sort of oral exaltation, if you like, in which the language really becomes incandescent, and you are sort of washed away. I mean, they are simply talking with themselves as they try to really conjure this experience and capture it and communicate it. Then what often happens, I find, is that they suddenly become aware of the passion with which they're speaking and of the power and the poetry of their language and of the fact that it's invariably strongly vernacular when they do this and close up. And there is a period in which one has to sort of be very gentle with them so that they come back to ease and, com and reassurance and confidence again. And then with luck, you know, they go off into another situation in which this also happens. And again, the tape recorder, you know, is a great therapeutic agent in this. Okay. Right. I would like to play you um, a sequence. I mean, I don't think Charles was above making people do it again, <laughs> you know, if he hadn't got it right the first time. So I'd like to play you this sequence, which is about this driver describing what it's like at dawn, you know, when you start... Um, going out to, you know, to go out and start your shift. What a feeling you have when you get off the ship. You've got the engine, you've got the control of it. And what a feeling, I'm cock of the bunk. There's nobody can take a rise out of me now. She's mine. Come on, me old beauty, and off we go. The moon's out, and the countryside, it's lovely. Look at that hill over there with the moon shining on it and the trees and the valley. It's beautiful. On we go. What a feeling. She answers to every touch. Some more rock on, lad. Yes, it's grand. Oh, Luke. They lit up in the mill across the way. Somebody else is working on nights besides us. Hey, look there. Sun's coming over the hills. And what a sight. England at dawn. It's been worth losing a night's sleep for this as if only the people of England could see it. England. England, and there's nowhere like it at dawn. Hello, Bobby. Yeah. 8188, light to Adwood, 611 Buxton. Right? Right on, eh? So what do you think? It's so perfectly timed, but it's actually quite stagey. And I'm sure he must have got him to do it several times. Um, but it is getting inside what it's like to me. Um, you, yes, sorry, Chris. Well, I, 
I've wondered about this. I do wonder about this, and it's difficult to find the evidence because it does feel like that, doesn't it? Yeah, but he must have said it. I mean, I don't think my father would have written it. Um, in fact, I know he wouldn't have done. So maybe he said it in a rather hammy way, you know, not quite the way that he wanted, and then they... I'm not sure. I, I'm really not sure. But um, it, it has a stunning... But what I love is the whistle of the train, you know, and the sort of the men walking and just that whole sort of waking up vibe to it. I just love it. Anyway, you would be surprised to know how influenced in something that uh, seems so quintessentially English, uh, you have as Americans been, actually. Uh, my father, when he was in the war, was actually um, inspired. He was taught by a whole load of American service guys to sing Casey Jones. You know this song, yes? So that's sort of... Then there was Norman Corwin's The Lonesome Train, which, do people know about The Lonesome Train? It was a program that was made with Burr Lives, I think, and Earl Robinson, and it was about uh, Abraham Lincoln's funeral train and the way it goes. It was an, a musical narrative, and it wasn't real people. It was people, you know, actors. But it, it had this thread through it of um, going from different communities that Lincoln's life had touched. And it's a beautiful, if you get a chance to listen to it, it is... Very evocative, and apparently, according to a friend of my dad's, when he heard it, he just sat there with tears sort of rolling down his cheeks and said, do we dare make something like this? <laughs> so there you go. And then there was Peggy Seeger. Now, she, while I was doing the recording, um, Peggy Seeger is Pete Seeger's sister, um, and as I said, she had this strong sort of rooted in the sort of American folklore traditions. And she told me this, which I don't think anybody knew until I did this recording, which was about where the song for the John Axon, you know, the title song, came from. So I'm just going to play you track 11, um, which is Peggy talking about this, in case you think I'm making it up, which I'm sure you You created the ballad of John Axon out of songs that already existed, an awful lot of them. The one that most people remember is the opening one. Uh, which originally was Harry Sims, he was a union man, two unions born and bred, you know, and it went right through the killing of, of Harry Sims, the murdering by the, uh, by the vigilantes, and it's a song of mourning. So that's what was happening in the Ballad of John Axon, is that he was being celebrated and mourned at the same time, in the way that, that folk people do. And uh, I don't think think he had any concept of making it, quote, British. I really don't think so. He wanted it to be effective. He was very much steeped in uh, um, English folk music. He knew something about American folk music, and he was thrilled by the sound of the banjo. He loved the banjo, which, of course, um, Charles Parker did as well. So after, you, after the Ballad of John Axon, there was actually a lot of debate about whether or not they should use American music and all of that, you know. But in fact, I mean, there was a lot of Peggy in the arrangements, you know, in a lot of the instruments she used. Later on, she uses the Appalachian dulcimer. But there's also a lot of English instruments, too. And, and I just... Um, 
I, I think that is what makes the music quite special. But the banjo was just a perfect vehicle in terms of like a train, you know, the way she uses it. It has that sort of ongoing feel. But I'm going to gloss over um, Song of the Road, not because I think you shouldn't go and listen to it, <laughs> but just because I haven't got masses of time. Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, that's the difficulty at the moment. Topic Records bought them all out on, on <coughs> CD. You can, I'm told, still buy them from Amazon. Um, here, this is the, they're like this. And it's Topic Records. But actually the license that Topic had from the BBC to sell them has subsequently run out, so it's not like they're selling them through Topic Records anymore. Or this guy who wrote the book, if you go to Peggy Seeger's website or his website, he has access, he's sort of trying to make sure that people can get hold of them as well. Um, or at a pinch, I guess I could run you off a copy. Actually, don't put that out. Sorry. <laughs> no, you'll have to cut that out. <laughs> Right, okay. Um, so I'm now going to go to the one that won the Pre Italia, which was Singing the Fishing, and that was in 1960. Um, Song of the Road, you and Peggy and Charles have sort of slightly fallen out about it all, really. You know, there have been a bit of a. I mean, my father's a very sort of conciliatory person, Ewan was very sort of. Um, uh, he really was a champion of the working man, you know, and he felt that Charles was probably a bit of an establishment figure. Although, in fact, my dad's own father had been a disabled, had been disabled sort of railwayman and had actually sold paraffin off handcart, you know. So my father hadn't exactly come from a privileged background, but having gone through the Navy and come out the other side of Cambridge, you know, with a posh accent, um, posh English accent, that is, I, and being a Christian and all of those things which were quite different to what Ewan was, you know, having um, been involved in all the street theatre and things. Um, and, but seeing the fishing, suddenly it all came together for them. And they met this guy, Sam Lana, who they recorded. In fact, they recorded 30 Hours of One Man. But he had all the traditional songs as well, which were, of course, a great you know, benefit to Ewan in terms of the research, you know, when trying to get the sound right. And they also had another key interviewee called Ronnie Balls. And in addition, there was some really gutsy women uh, who were the fishing, who sang the, gut, the songs around fish gutting. But I'm going to play you the beginning of Singing the Fishing, and then I'm going to sort of go into a blow-by-blow -blow account, really, of how it got made, actually, because that's the difficulty of how you put all these sounds together without all the computerised editing that we have. We present Sam Lana of Winterton. Up jumped the air in the king of the sea, said he to the skipper, look under your lee, sinking windy old weather boys, stormy old weather boys, when the wind blow, we'll all go together. <laughs> and Ronnie Balls of Yarmouth in Singing the Fishing. When you're doing well and catching fish, 
They talk to them all the time. Come on, spin up, my darlings, come on. And they absolutely cajole them into the nets. And wherever the heron are, the fishermen will go after them. You might be working 200 miles from Aberdeen on the Norwegian deep water or off shields. If the heron are there, you have to go and get them. Come all you gallant fishermen that plough the stormy sea The whole year round on the fishing grounds Of the northern minch and the Norway deeps On the banks and knolls and the north sea halls Where the herring shoals are found So, Sam Lana was this sort of great find and they worked as well a way of work... They worked out a way of working which was very effective... So Ewan would produce a sort of a long script, a narrative script with songs and everything. So it, unlike being an ordinary conventional script, it was a script with songs, and he would suggest sequences which the songs have come from. And then my father would like sit down, editing quarter-inch tape. Anybody here know, remember quarter-inch tape? Yes. <laughs> and... Um, there are rumours that he used to break into the BBC because at the time you actually weren't allowed to edit your own tape, so you used to break in at night to edit um, because the BBC wouldn't, couldn't... Um, well, I mean, he was asking for a lot of studio time, you know, a great deal of studio time and paying the engineers because he had so much tape and he also wanted to edit it in such fine detail because that was the only way he could sort of put these layers and these bits together. So he had to edit all his building blocks. Um, I think he was just nice to the commissioner, actually. I don't think he actually sort of climbed in through the back window or anything like that. But it's a nice story, isn't it? Yes. But I know that he used to just be editing all the time. And eventually he managed to sort of ploin um, uh, editing machine for home. And I remember as a very small child hearing the constant editing and editing, which actually my own children now suffer from <laughs> as well. <laughs> you know, that sound where you go backwards and forwards over something. And I want to play you a, quite a long section now from... It's um, a storm sequence where he's trying to conjure up the idea of the storm and normally you would think of these great films, you know, with the sort of lots of strings and violins and clashing percussion and stuff. But they decided that the way they wanted to conjure up the storm sequence was using the fish, mark, the, the fish market, intercutting the fish market and people's stories about what it was like, you know, to be in fear of your life, alongside the shipping forecast and everything. So it's a whole mix of things. So I'm going to play you this, and then if you can just imagine while you're hearing it, that all you have is a great big sheet machine that's mastering everything and that you've got the instruments, the singers, the bits of clip being played in, the um, bits of, um, um, not archive, you know what I mean, sound effects being played off mm -hmm. a, a, a record, so it had to be absolutely, it was old records then, it had to be absolutely at the point so the person on the record machine could put that in and the how they did it, and I think it took a long time. I don't know. So I'll play, play you that bit, which is... So just try and imagine what it would have been like in that studio. You know there's death there if one of them gets you.
per se is a thing that doesn't change, you see. A fundamental, like the climate, or mountains, or things like that, you see, you can't change the sea. So you take your lovely machines and ships and gear to sea, but you still gotta use them subject to what the sea will let you do. You see it when it's lovely to be out there, you see it when it's flat and calm, and, and then you'll see it with just a little air ripple on it, and you'll see it when there's mountains of boiling water. When the sea grows dark And the glass is low and falling Quick rise after low Indicate the stronger blow When your nets are stretched out there Two miles or more Winds south to southwest Force four to six Gradually veering northwest and increasing to force seven tomorrow afternoon. When the breeze is freshening to a gale and climbing up the Beaufort scale and the wind is screaming. Your mind's not on the market, then the buying and the selling men at the market prices. We went in this boat and that came on a gale of wind that came down the Saturday night. And that blew for three or four days a living gale and we were in these little boats. Without a good breeze when we finished hauling. And when he dished out the six o'clock weather forecast, we had then got it very bad where we were in the North Sea. And we'd be somewhere about 50 miles from Lowestoft when that struck us. First of all, she, she broke the side windows in the wheelhouse. I eased the ship in and head up to wind and Dardy stood time we patched these side windows up. I mean she took a tremendous sea and I shall never forget that sea as long as I live. Those great seas are coming. Now and again they'd peel you know, and break. And once they break, look out. So I stood in the wheelhouse like the skipper. I was there the whole blessed night, me and the skipper. The chaps down below are crying. They wore these young chaps, you know. Well, once she shipped the sea, I said, Ted, look out. I said, there's one going to get us. They that come roaring along. I bet you our boots stood on our hand like that. I bet she stood up like that. You just couldn't see the ship. All you could see was the mast sticking out of the water on her. Yes. I, I thought the ship was going... It actually goes on for seven minutes. 
And I think that Third Coast wouldn't have been getting their money's worth out of me if I let you listen to it all. Um, I think it's so astonishing, the bass concertina, you know, and that sound of the sort of... that on, ominous sound and, and the stories, you know, that they have and, and the excitement in the you know, in the um, market, which sort of underlines why these men are risking their lives. All of that, I don't know if you agree, but I just think it's quite amazing. So now, let me play a clip of one of the engineers who was there, sort of like a chief engineer who had to try and hold some of it together, technically. Uh, the first take was chaotic. I mean, we were just sort of groping. We'd, we'd do about five seconds and then break down. And then we did 10 seconds, and then we broke down. And gradually, we built up and built up until we managed to do 30 seconds without breaking down. And then we were doing 40 and 50 seconds, but then we were going wrong with the first bit again. And, you know, it was really uh, a massively complicated thing, getting it all working. So on the floor, the more we did it, the artists were having to uh, subjectively give more every time because with as many takes as we were doing, there's the natural human tendency for intensity of performance to fall off. So they had to really drive themselves much more. And that's where, I mean, Peggy Seeger came in. She sat on a big high sort of Victorian Clark's podium with a desk in front of her so she could play the guitar and conduct and be seen. Uh, Ewan stood alongside her with, at a microphone with other solo singers. Um, there was a choir to the left of that then dotted round in a sort of circle about a, a 30-foot radius, no, about a 30-foot diameter, were um, Jim Bray, the bass player, uh, Fitzroy Coleman, West Indian guitarist, uh, Alf Edwards, uh, trombonist and um, ocarina player, uh, and he also played Jews harp in it, which was very... Oh, and English concertina. He had a double bass concertina, which was very important in that sequence. Um, Alfie Kahn, who played uh, saxes and harmonica, and um, uh, Brian Daly, another guitarist, great big guy, who is now known as the composer of the music for Postman Pat, <laughs> of all things. Um, and that was the ensemble. And these people were all... Oh, and the, the tape machine as well, in this group of musicians. And they were all straining, looking up, because by the time we got to take eight or nine... They didn't need to look at the dots anymore. They were, they were, they got it up here in the head. It was very fast. It was very furious. And at the end of each take, we'd sort of hold it. The music would die. I'd fade them after fader, and they'd all look up at Charles in the gallery, and he'd say, "Yes, yeah, very nice. That's nice. I think we need another one, though. You know." <laughs> so we'd be at it again. And the really interesting thing, it all sounds like too much trouble, doesn't it, really? But um, listen to... This is why my father actually thought that the musician being in... with the actuality being played in actually informed the way they played, so... The musician in the studio, if he's going to be able to play, create in his own field of music, a reality which has the same essence, which is as authentic as the actuality, then, in fact, what's happening to the artist in the studio is that he is momentarily, for the period of the production or the recording, say it's a program on coal miners, 
able to participate in the working and social experience of the minor and this informs what he's doing as an artist and then you get this tremendously exciting thing but unless that happens then nothing is going to happen to the listener because no, sorry lost it yes no it's don't worry <laughs> it's probably me actually bad editing there um, which I guess could bring me into editing generally. Shall I just now move into editing? And my father obviously did a lot better than I do. Okay, um, so if we go to track 22, please. And he talks about manipulation because in fact, if you think of the amount of material that was recorded, the scope for manipulating the material and misrepresenting the people is actually quite great. Um, and he has a really interesting take on the whole thing, which I'll let you listen to. And this is where one comes under fire, because we do edit the actuality very considerably, at least I do, and by the time it's gone through the process and emerges as part of the programme, it has been polished, tightened up, um, non-sequiturs excised, and this can be construed as an unwarrantable interference with you know, actuality. But I, be I believe that, that what one is really doing when one handles recorded speech in this way is what every artist has always done with his material, and I believe that this is an artistic process. Um, one is uh, sort of going through the actuality to reveal the reality of the situation. And it's like setting the piece of actuality, like a, a sort of jewel. I don't want to be too lyrical about this, but this is an exact expression of what, in fact, one does, is get it so that it reveals every facet of itself and is set in the music, like a, a jewel in a ring, you know? I mean, it, it, it really does reveal qualities that are not immediately apparent in the raw product. Let's talk a little about editing as a technique. Um, it's a very long process, and one has to be very careful. You cannot do it quickly, because almost certainly if you do it in haste, you destroy the actuality. You do then start to manipulate it in the pejorative sense, impose your will upon it, whereas it's really the other way round. The, the, the genius of the language is imposing its will on you when one handles a tape recorder yes. in this way. Um, but to give you an instance, you remember you and when we were doing the programme on the M1, the motorway, Song of a Road, oh, yes. and... Basically, he goes on to talk about um, how they edited all these different names together and where people came from for Song of the Road. But, I'm not, I want, but I, what I really want to play you is something from the polio programme, The Body Blow, because it's quite astonishing that the editing is as precise and minute uh, you know, as it is in this. Um, the Body Blow was, as I say, about polio sufferers. Uh, a lot of these people had actually, uh, well, a couple of the people actually had speech problems anyway because they were in our lungs and they had tracheotomies and they'd had their throats virtually, it's cut really, isn't it, so that they couldn't speak in a fluid sentence. And one guy in particular could only speak on the inspiration of the machine that he was in. He was in an iron lung. Do you know what an iron lung is? Yeah. Um, and so he could only because it breathed for him, he could only speak because he'd only have enough air. And so it was all very, very disjointed. At the beginning of the programme, they say how 
editing has restored wholeness to his voice. Um, and which it does, so, because you can't hear him speaking in this very disjointed way, you just wouldn't cope with it as a listener over a long period of time. But at the end, they do actually show how his voice is in reality. So it's a very interesting use of editing at a time, I think, when we weren't really thinking, or they weren't thinking about this very precise nature of editing. They were thinking much more in broader terms, you know, like you get someone to read a bit of script, you'd cut it at the top and you'd cut it at the end, and then everything would be fine. But you wouldn't sort of edit within sentences or just single words. And the bit I'm going to play you, they're trying to conjure up what it's like not to be able to breathe, to be so paralysed, that feeling of suffocation. And I think it's beautiful, beautifully evocative. However, the body blow was not considered a particular success in terms of the radio ballad form and everything because it didn't have this inherent um, cohesive quality of the working community. It was a much more sort of disparate type of... It was a community through an illness, if you see what I mean. So, we should now play it. Can't breathe. Can't breathe. Can't... It's the mayor. The swimmer panics in the undertow. Fingers lose their hold on the rock face. The runner stumbles on the rim of darkness. I think you've got to be a polio to really understand. We have a saying in this ward that we live dangerously. And by golly, you do. If someone's forgotten to put a shilling in a meter, bang goes your air supply. We have to have machines to help us live. But they're not enemies. Okay, so that final speaker, not the woman, but the man, was Dutchie Holland, who is the person who has this problem only being able to speak on the inspiration, inspiration of the machine. So I'm going to play you the next bit, and this is played at the end, and it's sort of re, you know, recapitulation, basically. We have a saying in this ward that we live dangerously, and by golly you do. If someone's forgotten to put a shilling in a meter, bang goes your air supply. And then everybody, they hunt for another shilling. See, we can't afford to have a quarterly meter here. Yeah. Interesting use of editing when you think that it was 1961, probably. Yes. I mean, I, I think it's extraordinary then, and it's very effective. The Body Blow was one of the programmes that sort of influenced the new radio ballads, the 2006 ones. John Leonard had particularly steered clear of any subjects that, you know, the same subjects. 
Um, he did shipbuilding and the steel industry, but actually they were industries in decline, unlike when the originals were made, when you actually the industries were in full flood. I mean, they were under threat from all sorts of things, but they actually existed. Um, so you have an immediacy, immediacy there by the fact that the men were actually still working. The Song of Steel and the big ships about the ship industry are brilliant programs. Um, the interviewees were talking more retrospectively. Um, then there was the hunting program, which put both sides of the hunting issue, which is a big thing in England. I'm afraid I haven't got a clip of that to play. Uh, it was a great program because, you know, it had an inbuilt conflict within it, obviously. Um, and then the other one, there was one on uh, AIDS, which had an immediate sort of parallel with the body blow. And in fact, I did listen to the body blow several times again and started to appreciate it much more because I liked singing the fishing and all the sort of action ones, actually, <laughs> up to this point. In the originals, one of the criticisms as well was the absence of women. I mean, women in the originals reflected the time, really, in that they were women that were um, supporting their husbands, either as wives or sisters or mothers. They weren't really women and working in their own right. So actually, I sort of decided that I would interview women and children for the AIDS one. Um, I'd like to play you this little sequence, which is one of my particular favorite sequences from this, because the song that was written by Karen Powalt isn't, relates to the audio, but doesn't directly use the same words. Do, do you, there's a sort of difference, isn't there, between writing a song which relates and writing a song which is too obvious. And I think that's always the danger when you're being inspired by what people have said, that you're just repeating, in a way, what they've said, rather than underlining the feelings and the soul behind it, if that all makes sense, or am I being a bit airy-fairy here? There's something very wrong, which is probably the hardest part to deal with because it's the same person, they look the same, they talk the same, they wander off into a world you cannot follow. We store the light in Melody's eyes All alone under the audio A laugh be another light in disguise Down where I cannot go down where I cannot follow I know the name of the fire thief All alone and alone But I can't grow a tree from a fallen leaf Down where I cannot go Down where I cannot follow I left my son at home and I brought my husband over here. I loved him very much. We hadn't been together for very long and he, I thought we were going to be together for the rest of our lives. I really thought I'd met the love of my life. I had. That's what people don't understand because they think that somehow you should hate this person. And, I mean, 
if I'd contracted something else from him, they wouldn't expect me to hate him. And I didn't. I loved him. And it wasn't his fault. Who stole today? Who stole tomorrow? All alone and alone, and left me with nothing but dool and sorrow down where I cannot go, down where I cannot follow, down. I was filled with revenge. I was filled with hunger against my partner. After a few months, he started dating a girl whom I knew very well. And when I heard about it, I called this girl. I said, "Look, you better care, be careful with this this man here before you sleep with him, or if you have really slept with him, then I'm sorry." I tried to warn her, and since that time we became great enemies, me and him. And few years ago, he died. it run on as well um, just to illustrate that the changes in the second radio ball- in the new radio ballads 2006 were more obvious you know that there was there were sections and then you move into the next section the originals are much more involved and complicated from that point of view but then they were for a different station. They were for actually a speech station, and it was a real shock to a speech station. I mean, the 2006 ones, and for some people, they are the only radio ballads because they've never heard the originals, um, were made for a music station. I think that section, The Fire Thief, works absolutely brilliantly, that the song is perfect, and what the, muse, the sound that goes behind is fantastic as well. The original ones, were part of a folk song revival at the time. You know, they was, there was a lot of interest in folk music. There's almost like a second revival in Britain as well. And some of the songs are so good that they actually, people think they're traditional songs. So in folk clubs around Britain, people will sing the Shoals of Herring and people will think they're originals. John Tam, who was Tams, who was the musical director, in the 2006, there was a song that he sung, sung called Steelo. It's a wonderful song um, at a folk club in the Steel area where he lives, you know, and he was singing this song. An old guy came up and said, oh, I know that song. I used to sing that song, you know. And I think that shows success, really. The problem, you know, in the form and, and marrying it to the, the actuality when people actually think that the song is actually something that comes from, is rooted in their community and their traditions. My father was really against pop music, you know, and Ewan was against pop music. So much so that when I was a child, I used to have to go around to a friend's house to listen to a pop record. (laughs) So I had a really deprived childhood from that point of view. However, On the Edge, possibly, some people think, could have suffered. On the Edge was about teenagers, 
And of course, they used folk music and folk styles. And it was about young people. It was a time when the Beatles, you know, were hot property and everything. So, I don't know. I'm going to play the beginning of On the Edge just because I think it's relevant, it was relevant then to teenagers, and actually I played it to teenagers now and it seems relevant, the issues seem relevant to them now. Daddy, 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 goodbye. I've always kept a diary, a little book which I buy every year, and I was looking through it the other day and I noticed on one of the pages I'd written, I hate daddy. Please, sir. Please, miss. Please, sir. Goodbye. I left school and all of a sudden, freedom. I needn't wear that horrible uniform. I needn't wait for a bell to go into assembly every morning. Goodbye, Dolly. Goodbye, plastic guns, tin soldiers. Farewell. Goodbye, old man, old lady. Ta-ta. Goodbye, round-toed shoes and Father Christmas, goodbye. I'm alone. Now I've been growing away from people and losing contact. And this is the loneliness that you feel inside yourself. It's all new and, and like an adventure which you've got to face. And well, It could be a nice adventure. You never sort of know how it's going to be. I mean, like when you... Go somewhere strange or turn a corner that you don't know what's on the other side. It could be something really beautiful. Or it could be a cliff edge. children of a troubled world the tale of a search and of a long journey leaving the safe and guarded fortress the searchers walk in the trackless places The new radio ballads, the 2006 ones, although, although they were a lot of sort of folk music of the type that's happening now, I think they were more, they were braver in some ways in terms of the types of style of music that they would use. Um, and I, I suppose I, I don't know if we've got time, but I'll play you something from the Northern Ireland program, where really music in this program was something that unified the Protestant Catholic sides of the program in a way. Because when I was doing the interviews, I sort of discovered that you often got um, bands that had Protestant and Catholic, even at the height of the Troubles, that nobody cared really 
whether you were Catholic or whether you were Protestant, when you were there, you know, at your gig, it was whether you could play the bass guitar well or whatever, or that you got a good voice, or, you know, you, you weren't, didn't tend to be asked. And in the 70s, there were bands that went around um, playing in dance halls where you could be a Catholic terrorist dancing with a Protestant girl, you know, and it was just young people, they cared about the music and these bands are quite big. And then there was a horrendous incident with a group, uh, with a band called the Miami Show Band, which was, um, you know, a Protestant Catholic band. I mean, not that anybody ever would say that, but the reality was that people within the band came from both sides of the sectarian divide. Um, and I um, interviewed this guy in a, a, just a small room in West London. And he took me right back to that point when he thought he was one of the surviving members of the band where, you know, a couple were killed and in the explosions and everything. And he just, the interview was just like sheer magic because he just like took me back into that time when he feared for his life in such an effective way. Anyway, this is a short clip from his story with the music, which you can see is not folk music. You know, it doesn't pretend to be. We were the Miami, the Miami, in that the place where the rain don't fall. The Miami, the Miami, now they're weeping in the old dance hall. Weeping in the old dance hall. I just kept my face down in on the grass and I heard this man walk towards me and he, my dilemma was that I just wondered if I should get up and beg for my life or just stay motionless and pretend to be dead, which I did. And um, he turned around miraculously, he just left. And I turned over on my back. I was looking up at the sky and I remembered talking to a girl a few weeks before and she was telling us about a time that she was with her boyfriend coming down the steps of some public building and her boyfriend was shot, and she was shot. And she told us that she knew she wasn't dead because she could feel a gentle rain on her face. And I remember thinking, I can't feel any bloody rain on my face. You know, I've got a problem here. I wish I could feel the rain, but I couldn't. We were the Miami, the Miami. It's just a very short clip. Um... So almost the perfect thing about making programs in this way with real people is that it, it's that sort of inner experience that you also touch. But they also had a very strong political edge, the radio ballads towards the end, particularly the travelling people, as I indicated when we were talking initially. And there is no doubt that um, both my father and Ewan at that time were very strong Marxists, um, although my father actually then moved over to be a Maoist. It's all right. I was given Engels when I was 11, you know. <laughs> I still remember being handed a copy of Engels. Um, so it's... I want to play you um, the, a clip from The Travelling People, which is this programme about gypsies. And actually, it's still quite relevant today because gypsies have never really 
had a place in our community because we're always wanting to move people on. We don't want them just sort of turning up and making a mess and then moving on, you know. It's, that's how we perceive if we live in houses and we live sort of normal lives and not paying their taxes or whatever. Um, this is about a woman who was giving birth and the police came and moved the caravan on and it inspired a song and it's an extraordinary story, really. It's one of those stories when you go out interviewing, you know, you... Hang on to now then. Which one? Where was, where was that? I was expecting one of my children, you know, one of my babies. And uh, my husband's son for the midwife. And in the time that there's gone after the midwife, the policeman come along. Come on, he says, get a move on. Shift on, he says. Don't want you on here, on my beat. So my husband says, look, he says, sir, he said, let me stay. He said, my wife is going to have a baby. No, I don't matter about that. He says, you get off. They made my husband move and my baby was born going along and my husband stayed in the road and my baby was born on the crossroads in my caravan. The horse was in harness and we was travelling along the road and the policeman was following us behind, drumming us off and the child was born, born on the crossroads. Born in the middle of the afternoon in a horse-drawn wagon on the old A5 the big 12-wheeler shook me bed You can't stop here, the policeman said You'd better get born in some place else So move along, get along, move along, get along, go Move, shift Okay, it sort of goes on in that vein and various other people talking about, you know, the problems that they had with the police or with communities where they were staying. And often they were really important, these, these itinerant travellers, because, you know, they'd come at a time when they needed lots of people to do farm work or harvesting or whatever. But um, the show people as well, when I was recording the show people, this was also something they experienced, a sort of innate prejudice. People would come to the fair, they'd have a great time, but they'd always be suspicious of these people that just turned up on their doorstep and were sort of gone in the morning. Um, I, if I can play you, I mean, I don't know if I've got time, just one little clip from the fairground programme, which talks really about the prejudice that they face today. That's sort of 50 years on, really, isn't it? Um, although they're not gypsies, they're different. They were very emphatic that they are not gypsies, they're show people. They've had centuries of being show people and that's who they are and they only marry within show people and they don't marry outside and you know, it's a very close community. I counted the copper and I sorted the silver and painted the alphabet right across the banner then wriggled in the school desk October would bring We were scholars in winter And free birds in spring You've got to understand that when we felt our prejudice because we wasn't very well educated and we couldn't read and write because we never had the opportunity to go to school our children are having that schooling so, so they know what their rights are and what people can and can't say to them and our business is going from strength to strength because they're better educated. If I'd had the books and sums, if I'd had the letters, would I be looking back at a life any better? 
I wouldn't be the wiser I wouldn't change a thing We were scholars in winter And free birds in spring We were scholars in winter And free birds in spring You can be educated and be stupid it's more of having common sense. Yeah, there's a lot of people. Still, a lot of people like just for instance, say like 10% of the show when I can't read because of all the racism in school. I never did my exams because I couldn't go that far because I've ended up getting shot or stabbed or murdered in my school. I bet I got called gypsy, scum, about eight times a day. Unfortunately, The Travelling People was the last of the radio ballads. Um, you know, the last of the originals that were made. Um, that was in 64 that it was, they went out. Uh, my father was incandescent with rage, I think, because <laughs> the money just wasn't there. Um, radio was going through a stage, you know, that was affected by the television coming on and everything. Um, my father always thinks there was sort of political reason, but it was probably just purely because the money just wasn't available for them to spend all this time making these programmes. Um, one of the good things about making the 2006 ones was that, you know, we do have all the production facilities to do things like this, and I would urge you to go out and make sort of programmes in this way, which I'm sure you probably do anyway. Um, and my father eventually left the BBC. He started a political theatre group um, called Banner, um, which now is still going, plays actuality clips, but not actuality clips of people, uh, sorry, of sound, obviously of people, but it's video clips that they use on a big screen projected behind the musicians. It has that say, and they also address the sort of inhumanities towards men, mainly, and women, you know, migrant workers, people like this, refugees that come to Britain. Um, and you know where there's so there's still that sort of strong political edge there's one thing i don't know how happy he would be if he heard this but i will play it just so we can have a little dance out of the room really which is a remix <laughs> of a radio ballad or the bits of the radio ballad which was done by peggy's um one of peggy's sons who's now a music producer and um it's quite unusual <laughs> on the third day i've been one world Monday and Tuesday, I think that's the sun stop shining. Did the sun stop shining? If you're hurt, you'll get up and fight. And that's life. Because when you're born, your life starts to fight. You're fighting against something. You're fighting against something. And that's life. Where's the man with the character as can take a punch on the nose and keep his temper and keep his That's in the fight game, which I didn't play you. Where's the man? Where's the man? What day did the world stop moving?
Okay, that's probably enough, is it? I see you're not dancing. You all danced out from last night. Ah, oh, dear. So, any questions? Sorry, I, I, nobody's... Any questions? Well, um, was it just me or did anybody else feel? It's like the, the ballad of John Axton that you played, I, I felt that I was, you know, outside it, looking at it. The, um, <clears throat> the, the piece from the, um, the, the teenage piece. Right? Yeah. I thought I was inside. Really? You know? Yeah. It seemed like, to me, it was a very different, very different kind of a feeling. Mm. And I'm just wondering if that was me, or, or whether the, the, his, their way of making the ballads actually changed significantly in that, as, they, as they went through. Well, I don't think it was so much... I mean, there was a, the, the way of making the ballads was the same, because you didn't really have any other way in terms of the actual production in the studio type process. But certainly the body blow only had, I think Charles had to make it in something like six or eight weeks, which was nothing in comparison to the time they'd had before, um, which I think was part of the imperative for him editing in the way that he did, you know, looking for new ways of doing it because he couldn't spend all this time with Ewan writing songs and Peggy writing <laughs> songs. Um, I think it's the difference in subject, maybe, do you think? You know, the fact that it is a more introspective subject, it's looking at the feelings of teenagers inside rather than the feelings of a community. And I think that sometimes is the criticism of those ballads as opposed to the, you know, the industrial-based ballads. Because um, they lost that identity, that single identity, the collective identity, if you see what I mean. It was a lot of individuals talking in a thematic way. Um, I mean, obviously, it, there's a development as well in the editing, I guess, in that you've got lots of short bits. In the earlier ones had short bits. The early ones had short bits, but they had... Well, I was actually thinking the later ones, the early ones had more... Well, they may be short bits, but from they're sort of the same people. You, you know what I mean? Rather than short bits of different people. So you sort of got to know the main characters, I guess, without ever really sort of knowing who they were. But um, I mean, I've not... I, I do agree there's a difference. And obviously, there was this development. There was this sort of moment. But if you're listening to the whole of the traveling people, that is more like the originals. Because, again, you have a community. I mean, okay, you could say you have a community of teenagers, but it's much more of a um, disparate community, isn't it, really? You know, from different parts of the country, and so it's much more introspectively based, I oh, guess. Well, we've all been one. And, and we've all been one, many yes. Many of us have raised them. Yes. You know, so, I mean, I would and that's, it's a more emotional yeah, connection in that yes. sense. And that's what's so interesting about On the Edge is if you play it to teenagers now, even though teenagers now are listen, used to listening to sort of 30-second clips. And I've just made a documentary for a BBC teenage station. The documentary is considered to be two 10-minute features with a little break in between for music to recover, you know, from listening to a full 10 minutes at one go. <laughs> I guess. You know, time was, I actually thought that 
No, no, that which gypsy segment? There was one that the first one was from the old, the originals. That's interesting, isn't it? That you, you, you can't, you can't define the, yes, you know, but no, the, the one about, you know, the education and I counted the, you know, that, that song, a free bird in, a scholar in winter and a free bird in spring. I just love that particular line. That one was from the new series, and that's about the showman. The previous one about the woman who was giving birth was from the old, was from the final traveling people. So. Does much exist of the original source? Well, yes. Um, I've left about the Charles Parker archive there. Uh, there's some leaflets, which is in Birmingham, in the Midlands. And there's just masses. I mean, as I was telling to Chris, I actually spent three times longer making this program just because I spent so long in the archive going through stuff. <laughs> I um, went to the archives for like an hour, the, the archivist took me in, and like the, you can see his mm. books, you know, the, his great big yes, books, uh, all books in which yeah. there's, there's cut and paste stuff, you know, and there's yeah. arrows and things yeah. that says Cuban yeah. symbol. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. It's like conductor's score yes, it for is. an orchestra. Yes. Oh, I may not have said it clearly enough. What, what happened in the original radio ballads was they would go off and do all the recording. Then Ewan would go away with selected tapes, which you know, they, Charles and he had discussed. And he would then form, he would have it all transcribed. In fact, I think it was Peggy, in her role as supporting wife, mm -hmm. did all the transcribing. And then they would go through it and they would take out what they thought were the interesting bits, just like, you know, if you and I were making a programme. And then they would write the songs and this musical narrative around these bits, which would then all go back to Charles, who would then sort of assemble this composer's, you know, con sorry, conductor's sort of score, so they could then go into the studio. It's sort of composed twice in a way, like the music is composed and then the piece is composed. Yes, well, the music, and, and in fact, I think John Tans did it in the same way, really, um, because, but then there were a lot of, a lot of musicians, uh, sorry, there was half a dozen songwriters who were all composing in different parts of the country. The thing about the originals was you had three people, that were, it was a vision from three people, really, and I think that's what gives it a special specialness. Didn't you say particularly with the first piece of the original that uh, Ewan was playing the music in whatever that place was? I, it was the train, wasn't it? The first piece. Were we talking about the train or the in the coal, coal pit? Oh, I, I'm not sure which. Yes. Uh, but, but it, he was, it was him, it was somebody else playing the concertina, it was Alf Edwards. No, but I but there was I, I thought that there that he was also on location being recorded. No, he was on location with the recording. Yes, which in fact none of the songwriters, with the exception of John Tams, who did a bit of, of he was involved in a bit of the steel recording. Um, you know the one about the steel industry. Everyone else just listened to the material. Um, for the old ballads, but the, 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 for, sorry, for the 2006 ballads. But for the old ballads, my father, Ewan and Peggy 
and later Peggy, not initially but later, would all be involved in the recording, which I think gives it that real understanding. The, musically, the music is then informed by not only hearing the edited voices as the 2006 ballads but weren't they the sometimes in the actual place? But they would be there, you know, like Ewan talks about being at Edgeley, you know, the railway, lo the locomotive shed in that clip right. I paid, you know, and sort of being there and experiencing that whole, what it was like. And the more you listen to them, this is the thing, I think now we tend to make much more linear radio because that's, because people want us, want to be able to immediately get it. The thing about the radio ballads, in fact, both radio ballads, is the more you listen to it, the more you appreciate it, in a way. You know, and you understand more each time, really. I mean, there must be, obviously, a limit to that, but... And that's what I like about the different levels of understanding within it. Any other questions? Thank you. Oh, good. Okay, thank you for coming.